One morning, she wakes me up to go farming and I said, no ways, I'm not going. And she said, I said, oh, I, I need to take a rest or I need to rest or something. And she says, do, do you know what they write on tombstones for people when they die? They write rest in peace. That's for, that's for dead people. Dead people rest, not you. You move. Welcome to another empowering episode of Embracing the Journey, Living Beyond Limits. Today, we have the pleasure of delving into a narrative that encapsulates the very essence of human potential, resilience, and the unwavering spirit to live beyond limits. Joining us is the remarkable Lloyd Majanja, whose awe-inspiring journey of determination, sacrifice, and an unyielding belief in the power of education. From the rural farm fields of Gokwe, Zimbabwe, to the prestigious halls of MIT, Lloyd's story is a testament to the transformative force of embracing the journey. At the heart of this story is a mother's profound vision and unwavering optimism, fueled by the belief that education holds the key to unlocking opportunities, from teaching in the alphabet in the sand and aspiring for a brighter future. Lloyd was provided the foundations and support to step forwards, and a father who is willing to sacrifice time with his family to provide and support with love and dedication. What sets Lloyd apart is not just his academic prowess, but the pragmatic decisions he makes at crucial crossroads. His story is not just about climbing the academic ladder, but about understanding the power of each step, each choice, and the significance of embracing the journey and taking opportunities with purpose. Like all of us, Lloyd has encountered moments of doubt, moments where he felt he didn't belong. Yet through empathy, the magic of community, strength found in others, he not only survived, but thrived. Lloyd exemplifies what becomes possible when we stay focused, stretch our comfort zones and challenge ourselves even when the road ahead seems daunting. So fasten your seatbelts for a journey that transcends geographical boundaries and cultural divides. Join us as we explore the life of Lloyd Majanja, a beacon of inspiration, a trailblazer in science and a living testament to the boundless possibilities that emerge when we embrace the journey and live beyond limits. Enjoy. Lloyd, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you here with me on this podcast. Um, we've known each other probably indirectly for about 10 years. Yeah. And probably yeah. met each other twice. Um, but every time I talk to family, the, the room lights up when they speak about you. So it's a privilege to have a chance to speak with you and, and discuss your journey. So um, first and foremost, thank you. And so I'm interested if you could share maybe some of your fondest memories of your early days where you were born, grown up, and more importantly, how that's influenced your personal and academic journey along the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I'm glad to be here and I don't think I have any important of a story to share. <laughs> so so it's it's humbling, you know, but it's always fun to talk about your childhood and also reflect on why you are who you are. And so this is really incredible. So thank you for having me on the, on the podcast to talk about my life and journey. So, so it's, and I love your question about the earliest memories for me. I was born in Zimbabwe in a very rural area. And, and, and when we talk, ab talk about rural area in Zimbabwe context, we're not talking about American rural areas where you still have internet and running water and electricity. We, we're talking rural where you have gravel roads, you have no running water, 
you, you have no electricity. And, and that's where I was born and, and grew up for, for a while there. And so I call my mom often, uh, especially now because I run to work. And I wake up at 4.30 a.m. every day to do yoga, then run to, to work. And in the morning when I'm running, I usually talk to my mom. And it's funny because she and I have been talking about my early childhood memories, right? And one of them was actually waking up early. And she told me, it's like, yeah, this is not the first time you've been, you do, you done, you've, you've been doing this. You've always done that. And here's how it actually happened. So my earliest memory is with my mom uh, living in the rural areas. She would wake me up every day at 4.30. Think, right, I am, say, four years old, right? Or, or I was like four years old, maybe five years old. She wakes me up in the morning to go farm, right? So we, we wake up and we go farming. And I hated this whole situation, right? So... I would wake up, we go farm, we go from 4.30 maybe all the way to like 9 a.m. And 9 a.m. we come back home to make some food and we make some food, eat something. And after eating, she starts teaching me again. So she's the one who taught me how to read, how to write. After When I'm tired from the farming, you see? And as soon as we did our whole teaching arrangement, right, we'll go back to farming for the, you know, for the rest of the day. And this was interesting. And this is how my bond with my mom sort of started was waking up in the morning, going farming, then learning about math and English and my native language is Shona, how to write the A, A, E, I, O, U, the vowels, all of that. By the time I started first grade, I was like at a third grade or fourth grade level of learning, right? And so... So those sort of were sort of my early childhood. And I even remember there was one moment I was not having it. One morning, she wakes me up to go farming and I said, no ways, I'm not going. And she said, I said, oh, I, I need to take a rest or I need to rest or something. And she says, do, do, do you know what they write on tombstones for people when they die? They write rest in peace. That's for dead people. <laughs> Get people rest, not you. You move. And so it's funny to think that now I'm 36 years old and I have that mindset of waking up early, getting things done, really still thinking that you rest when you're dead. I, I've modified some things, of course. You know, you know, I still have some balance and all of that stuff. But that, that, that sort of my early childhood memories. I was curious how your upbringing in Zimbabwe, what was the town that, that you were born? Is it, I, I don't want to pronounce it incorrectly. Was it Gok Gokwe? Yeah, yeah, you got it right. Yeah, you got it right. Um, yeah. So that, how got yeah. it but I, I'm, I'm curious. So you weren't homeschooled completely, right? That was your, uh -huh. in your early days, four or yeah. five. She started you really yeah. early on that track. Where, what, what's the schooling system like in Gokwe in, in, in Zimbabwe? Ah, uh, incredible question. So, so, so then this is what happens, right? So, so we are farming and then, and my mom, of course, realizes that this is very interesting. So as I was getting to close to school age, which is right around five, when I was five years old, 
my mom realized this. The nearest school in that rural area was maybe 20 kilometers away. And you would have to walk to school. So, you know, there's no school buses you know, in, in the rural areas, right? So you had to walk to school 20 kilometers away. And it's rainy, it's all of this, and you don't have shoes, you know, you're just like in the rural areas, you know. And, and she thought, you know what? She believed so much in education. I wonder why she was teaching me early. She really did believe in education. That she told my dad to get a job in town. So in town, so this would be the nearest, uh, I would say the nearest city, which was maybe five, six, seven hours away or something like that. And so my dad got a job in the city, being a, a security guard. And so, so this is what happens. I pick up, I say bye to my mom, me and my dad, we go to the town, right? We go to the city. And here's how amazing this whole trip was. This was the first time I was ever on a bus. This was the first time I saw lights, city lights. This first time I saw cars and noise and all of that. And I, I can literally remember all of those things because it, it was just like, wow, this is interesting. So, so, so in Zimbabwe, then in this city, I started first grade and, uh, and, and it's me and my dad at this point living together and then I'm going to school. And so I'm going to the school and the reason why we had to move from the rural areas because the schools in the rural areas did not have books and mm, did not have teachers too. So you could just go there and there's no teachers. So things were not reliable. You just go to school. And so, but in the city, at least, you know, I knew I had books, uh, I had teachers and I was good in school, man. I know there are certain people who just like school doesn't come easy. And I get it now after many years in school, I know that sometimes school doesn't come easy for people. For me, it just was easy. And thankfully to my mom, who had already sort of prepared me, right? So I started first grade in the city. I think I was with my dad for a couple of years there before my sister joined me, right? So my sister later joined me and then of course my brother and all of that. So when your dad got the job in the city, did you move there or were you still living in the rural area? And no, no, I, I, I moved with him. I moved with him. So, so the you two mom, of us... Your mom stayed in ah, your hometown? Exactly. So my mom stayed... And I moved. And I think by that time, I had, my mom stayed still farming. Now she's farming alone with my sister, who was maybe two years younger than me. So she stayed. I moved with my dad. So already, if you notice here, these two parents already, my mom and my dad, they were apart for as much as I remember. They later stayed together. Or My mom later moved to the city, I think, when I was in secondary school. She's like, I'm tired of farming. I'm moving now to the city. So she came in and, and uh, later on. So, so I moved with my dad. And I tell this story because it's funny. It's very funny and it's very important. I, I tell it to my wife. So think about it. My dad goes to work. I have to go to school. So, okay, I go to school. I come home. Either I could wait for my dad to come back from where or can start cooking for me. Or I can start cooking. And so I learned how to cook at five years old. I, I, I know it's a funny story because you start telling it in America, people are like, oh, child abuse or something like that, 
Right. But it was on so your own. Like it was on your own path that you wanted to to do. Yeah. So yeah, because you almost have to. You had to. You knew what you had to do, right? Like you had to know what you had to do. And for me, I knew. I got home. I did my own laundry, not the laundry machine situation. You know, like really washing with hands. So, because we used to wear, I think, some khaki stuff that got dirty quick as kids. But you had to make sure that you you wash your stuff, your uniform. We, we wore uniforms. Wash your uniform so that you can wait tomorrow. I wash my uniform. I do my homework. I cook and I go to bed. I wake up. I'm ready for the next day. This is all at five. This is all at five. Exactly. And my question is, what did you learn to cook at five years old? Oh, the whole thing. I mean, Zimbabwe, the whole Zimbabwe, there's a step of food in Zimbabwe called sadza. So you'd make that, you'd make chicken stew, beef stew. The whole thing I know here, people like, yeah, I learned how to cook at, at 10 years old and I was boiling an egg. You're making <laughs> a full-blown meal. So I'm assuming your dad was still at work when you all come home yeah. from school and cleaning. First question is, what was it like to be in that environment where your mom and sister, I'm assuming at, the, at what did you, I can't remember the distance you set away, but not commutable really, right? In terms of being able right. to get home. Your dad being in yeah. work, you kind of being, I mean, fully independent at the age of five, it sounds like. Exactly. Uh, was that just normal because yeah. of so, such a young age or, you know, how did you deal with it, that? I, I, it was pragmatic. My mom, because she was farming, she would send food to the, to, to the town, right? So what, not that she, she, once in a while, maybe she'll come like two, three times a year or something. But when she does, I mean, hey, we were getting all the fresh food from the farm and all of that stuff. And my dad was working, so he would send money so my mom can, you know, get the seeds and the crop. It, it's, for me, I think at a young age, I, I learned, one, this idea of pragmatism. Like, you, you sort of have to be very practical in whatever you do. So, and to some people, you might think there was something messed up about that. And yes, there could be. But you also learn to manage your emotions and feelings and look at things in a more practical rather than in a like, what's the word? So, so I don't know. You, you just have to be practical. So, so I never really thought about it too much as, oh, this is weird. No. Yeah. And also a lot of families in Zimbabwe during that time had that model as well. So it wasn't different for us. I knew a lot of some of my friends who, who were in that sort of same situation. And, and, and it wasn't any different, right? Right. So, it was normal. Yeah. yeah. How big was, was your town, the, the farming town? How many people would you guesstimate? Oh, it, it was small, but so spread apart. I mean, these communities were so spread apart. You know, you, you, it's not like you'd know everyone. I mean, people just, okay. Think about it this way. If you ever been to central Illinois, Okay. If you ever been to central Illinois or if you ever go to Kansas, sort of these farming places or farming areas, you'll see how things are a little bit spread apart. You, yes, technically you'd know how many people, maybe hundreds, maybe 200s, but who knows? People were so spread apart. Right. Yeah. The reason I ask that is how, how common was it for young children that age to relocate for, cause I'm assuming this is like for schooling purposes, right? Because you said there's a local school, but there's no books, no teachers, no real structure around your education. So was that decision for you, your mom to tell your dad to get a job in the city and for you be, 
purely because of schooling or was it common in your upbringing of people around that they would just stay in that farming community? Where did that inspiration come to, okay, I, I need my son to go to a school that has teachers, that has the ability to help for the future? Where, where does that come from? Uh, you ask a very good question. So this is where my imposter syndrome always comes from. That same, that exact question, because the answer is this, I think I'm lucky. <laughs> no, because many times I really do think if my mom had, did not have that epiphany or that, that inspiration or just that thought, I'll still be farming in the rural areas right now. There's no difference between me and the people that, or some of the kids I grew up with. There's, there was no difference except just that thought my mom had. Right. Because, and also the ability to problem solve and think and, and, and envision a bigger life than what they were living. Because <laughs> you would laugh at this, but. And probably my dad would not want to hear this one of these days. My dad was pretty fine farming. He, he, he was fine with the idea of, hey, we have a farm here. I could have stayed there for the rest of my life. But I think my mom had sort of had a vision, you know, of believing in something bigger than herself. And that's the magic source. She believed in that. And she gave me that opportunity to go get education, right? And I now strongly believe in it myself personally, right? If it wasn't for her, I would be farming right now and married and probably have like 10 kids and my kids are farming as well. And so I always reflect on that decision my mom made because that made one of the biggest impacts in my life, even the way I think now and the way I do things because I always reflect on it I've been given so much more. I need to be better at everything that I do because there are people who will never, ever have this opportunity, right? So, so I never want to sit around and say, oh, this is all I can do. I've been given way too much and I need to push the limits of everything that I can do because I know right now there's kids I grew up that are now married to 10 kids and are still farming. As we journey through Lloyd's early memories, it's a self-reflection moment for each of us. Who is the inspiration in our own journey, pushing us to stretch our limits? For Lloyd, it was a mother's visionary optimism and wanting to write a story that was bigger than oneself. Education became the beacon of their dreams. So as we listen, let's ponder. Who believes in us? Who sacrifices for our opportunities? And in striving to be better, are we honoring their sacrifices? For Lloyd, his pragmatic approach led not only to passion, but laid solid foundations, proving that the journey itself can unlock extraordinary possibilities. Stay tuned for more insights into Lloyd's inspiring story of embracing the journey with purpose. So that the early phase right, where your mom was teaching you English, reading, writing, math in home at four or five, you, it seems like you just had a passion for learning at the time, but not a passion for farming. Is that correct? No, no, no. <laughs> Would you have welcomed this... up to learn or was the learning part of the enjoyable part of the day to break up the, the farming work? 
can I say something? This idea of passion, I think it's it's also, again, sorry to say, it tends to be American. The idea about passion, passion is irrelevant in all of this. I mean, I did not care. I did not care to wake up early at 4.30. I did not care for farming. I did not care for false learning. But do I reflect now and say that was the best thing that ever happened to me? Yes, every day I'm so thankful for that. Because if you tell me, oh, was you, what were you passionate? I mean, I later figured out certain things in life that I was very passionate about. And I pursued in my adult life, there's so many things I can say I love, but not at an early age. I, I, it was not about passion for me. It was about practical things you have to do. Right. You have to learn, you have to read, you have to add math. You have to farm because, you know, you need to get the food. It was very practical for me. Right. Now, in terms of learning, you said earlier that it, it was pretty straightforward to you, right? You, you, you could figure things out quite quickly. Was that something that helped in terms of you wanting to move into an education path further down the line that you really had that thirst for learning new things or challenging yourself in that area because things maybe became pretty straightforward at the very early parts of your education? Good. Okay. So let's say this. Yes, I might have been blessed by some, something, you know, when it comes to education, I might, but I wouldn't say necessarily things came easy. They, they would, oh, it was difficult. I remember when I was learning how to write the A. So I was writing it on the, I don't know if it, this is pretty fun. I'm glad I'm talking about this because it's making me remember a lot of crazy things. So you would think I was using pencil or paper. No, I was doing it on the sand or on the ground. Literally, my mom would hold my hand and draw a circle. <laughs> and then, and, 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 and so, and so this stuff was very hard. Okay. Because, it, but there was always one thing that I always appreciated about how I learned. I would learn something and I start getting good and then boom. I get it. I hit a barrier of not knowing, right? And then I start working hard. Like, how can I know? How can, then boom, I learned. For example, when I started how to do division in mathematics, right? Or long division or anything. I, I got it, but then at some point I could not get it. And then I struggled. I studied. I said, so it was always fascinating for me. This whole process of you learn something then it becomes very hard. Then you really either, this is where the magic happens. I feel like at least for me, either you say, ah, screw this, I'm out. This is not my thing. Or you can say, how can I learn this? And then go to the next level. Because once you start seeing the magic of things opening up, when you learn, like, oh my God, this is so easy. And then you get better. Then it gets hard. That journey of becomes tough, gets easy. It's incredible. I, I can literally see that in almost everything that I've done since then. For example, running, when I started running, it was the same thing. Running was hard. Then it got easy. But then it also got hard again because now I'm trying to chase like even faster times. I'm like, how do I do that? Then it, it's a journey, right? It, but you're always very curious to know 
if I can do this and work better on it, what's on the next uh, level? It's like playing a game, I guess, you know, and you're always curious about the next level. Yeah. Can you talk um, me through the path to mm. the U.S.? How did the journey to the U.S. happen? Well, so that's also a very interesting story. I, I would say this to, to have context. Education in Zimbabwe is not free. You actually have to pay for your education starting from grade one all the way to advanced level. You have to pay. And the funny part is, as you advance in your education, it gets more expensive, right? And at some point, my parents did not make money or a lot of money at all. My mom was a stay home and as you know, she was farming, so she wasn't making any money from farming. And my dad wasn't having any real jobs. He was actually, I think the word is custodian here, right? I think I used to know him as a janitor. He was actually cleaning the toilets at the school that was going to, which is funny because every student knew what my dad did, right? So at some point, they will not be able to pay for my education, right? So... So they tried, I, they paid for me to go grade one to grade seven, form one to form four, form five to form six. That became very difficult. And I knew once I finished high school, I was either going to stay at home or my life was sort of over. So I really started thinking about what's the next move. When I was beginning my high school, there was this, and remember, these are the days of um, no internet, no access to a lot of things for me at least. And a friend of mine came to me with a paper application to apply to Singapore. So you could apply to Singapore, get a full scholarship and go to Singapore for college, for high school and maybe later on for college. And I thought this was such a scam. I thought there's no way this is real, right? And my friend ended up applying. And a couple of weeks later, she was saying goodbye to me and going to Singapore. And I'm watching this. I thought, why the heck did that apply? And of course, from that moment, I learned another life important lesson that I've always been following, which is always take opportunities. So I watched her go and then I just got so devastated that she, she left and, and, and I was stuck in Zimbabwe. Anyway, I think a year later, I found, I don't recall exactly how I found this application, but it was an application to apply to, to the U.S. Embassy in Zimbabwe. And it was a program that if you apply and you got in, they would help you to apply to the U.S. And I thought, as soon as I got that thing, I never thought it was coming anymore. I would apply to anything at that point or anything. So I applied to that thing. I got in. Here's a funny story. There were 600 applications into this program. They only selected 33 students in the whole country. And I was one of them. And so I got into this thing and they started this program. It's called the USAP program. They helped me with writing my SATs and my 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 application, everything. And that's how I ended up applying here and coming over here. So the initial part was about the finance behind school that you would still have to pay. So you were looking for opportunities to expand that yeah. and basically take that burden off your family to a degree. Is that fair? 
No, well, yes, it's fair. I wasn't trying to take the burden off my parents. I knew it was over for me because I knew my parents would not be able to pay for my, um, for me to go to college. So either I had to figure out something or I was just, again, would have stayed in Zimbabwe, started farming and had 10 kids. It's the same independent thinking about, you know, finding solutions before it becomes a problem, right? You just nailed it. That has always been my theme of the of my life at this point. It's so weird because it all ties back to all of that. Uh, this idea of fierce independence, like you, you real, you become very pragmatic. You realize either you sit around and no one is going to solve your problems, or you solve your problems because you can imagine at this point, my parents have run out of money, and I might end up just getting stuck and not doing anything of not worth, or I can really start thinking. And also remember, my parents had not gone to high school. They, they never made it that far. So at some point, they could not even help me comprehend or even think about university. This was a world they had no idea about. And I knew that, right? And so I had to now make my part. And so I did. And so that, that whole idea of you have to solve problems before they become real problems. I think it, it's been a theme of my life. In the midst of Lloyd's incredible journey, let's take another moment for self-reflection. Lloyd's pragmatic approach isn't just about dreaming, it's about being proactive in problem solving. Whether navigating the learning process where challenges make way for mastery or facing issues head on with a determined fierce independence, Lloyd exemplifies a mindset that sees difficulties as opportunities. Join us in contemplating the power of clear thinking, perseverance, and proactive problem solving in our own lives. Lloyd's story continues, illuminating the transformative force of embracing challenges. So right now you're involved in community engagement, inclusivity, diversity, things like that at at, at MIT currently, and a role that you did at the University of Illinois as well. Where you started in the chemistry field, right? Right. What led you to chemistry and can you just talk us through how chemistry then turns into community inclusivity diversity and your role right now at MIT good I always want to give context it's funny this is why I'm not on Twitter because if I was on Twitter I would struggle to summarize things in what 80 characters I don't know how many characters I, I can't do that you have to have context so let's talk about the chemistry for a second I also remember, I'm very pragmatic and practical. I hated chemistry in high school. Didn't like it. <laughs> Didn't like chemistry one bit. And, and, and the funny part is, I love physics. I was good at physics, right? So I go to college, right? I went to college of St. Scholastica in Minnesota. And I want to do physics as a pre-med major or whatever. Realize they don't have a physics program. Oops. They don't have a physics program, they have a chemistry program. And so I thought, well, I won't do physics, then I'll do chemistry. What what choice do I have at this point, right? I might have, I, I, I couldn't do biology. I, I really did not appreciate biology at one point. I think I hated biology more than I hated the chemistry. Anyway, so, so I, I stuck with chemistry and so got that bachelor's, then went to, to Rochester for my PhD. And for, for grad school. And so someone would ask, 
for someone who did not enjoy or like chemistry, why did you stay in chemistry for that long? You know, you got a master's, a bachelor's, and a PhD. <laughs> but again, if you know something about me, I'm very practical. You know, this is why the idea of, oh, passion and what you love and blah, 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 for me, it's, you can make something, you can create passion out of something that started as some practical thing. You can create passion out of it. And, and I've created passion out of my chemistry. But there's a number of things that made me go from chemistry and into uh, what I call science equity, right? Or thinking about social justice in science. And in graduate school, there were not so many black chemists. And it was very obvious, right? It's so obvious. And I didn't feel right about that whole setup. It just didn't feel right. Like, I enjoyed research. This is incredible. It teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to be critical. It teaches you how to be a leader. And yet, we, we don't have representation. That's very questionable, right? So right then, I knew I wanted to focus on things that, that really increase that representation. Because again, tied to my early childhood, I always believed that education can change the socioeconomic for people, can change a, 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 a village and all of that stuff. So, so I wanted to increase more representation and I did not know what I what that job looked like, what, you know, and then later on I found a job and I applied and what this was, the first job I got out of my PhD was to really just do that, increase representation of chemists in, in research. And for me, that's exciting, you know, increase women in chemistry, increase blacks in chemistry, Hispanic in chemistry, think about how this environment can be equitable. Think about the barriers that are preventing people to engage in research. Think, I know research. I know the space so well. I've seen the barriers. I've, so so it's, not a, it's not a complete pivot, as you can see. It's really connected. It's very much connected. It's just seeing the bigger picture, right? If I had gone, if I had kept on doing chemistry in the lab, and I would not be able to have the impact as yet. I do think about policies, structures, uh, practices that we do on a regular basis that are preventing certain groups to be part of, of science. Can you share why you think there's an underrepresentation and, and how you foresee the work that you're doing right now, how to potentially change that representation? Oh, th th there's so many. I mean, there's, if you start thinking about the U.S., for example, like if you look at the U.S., let's go rewind and we start looking at, at the school system in the U.S. Like look at the school system and you start seeing that the funding in schools is not where it's supposed to be. You know, it sort of reminds me of the rural area schools that I, you know, where there's no books, there's no teachers. So if you think like, okay, inner city schools where you would find sort of people of color going to the schools because, you know, you don't, you know, you, the, the school system here is free unless it's private. So you end up going to these schools that don't, they are not well resourced, right? It means you might not get engaged with the science as much as you'd like. And so the exposure might not be there to the science, right? So now, okay, you probably don't think about 
the science when you, or when you graduate and you don't even probably think about college in some instances. So I, I, I like to think about all of these pieces and really think about ways to, to change sort of these things. And say, for example, say you were exposed to chemistry or the sciences as a black student and you were engaged and were excited, right? Even in the inner city schools, you come to the colleges now, when you start college, right? You realized it's almost like a sink or swim kind of setup. You are now in colleges where people, you are in classes where you have kids from private schools who went to private high schools, who took advanced chemistry courses, and you just took the bare minimum. And remember, you were the top student in your high school, but now you're in college, you're interacting. Do you know, you might say, eh, not my thing, right? So already there's certain things that can start weeding people out. And then you go to graduate school and you find you're the only one. And you're just thinking, uh, you know, and if you're in a space where you're the only one, you start feeling like maybe you don't belong here, yeah. right? Maybe you're in messaging around that can tell you directly or indirectly that you don't belong. I'll give you an example. You know, you're a black student, you're trying to get into your research lab and someone asks you, hey, are you, are you uh, do, do you work here? Are, are you, you know, and you're like, no, I do work here, but people are treating you like maybe you should not be here. Right? Right. Indirectly, maybe. And so, so there are certain things, of course, like that, that can also uh, prevent you from uh, entering. And I'll give you another example from my own life. And this is also why I love to study uh, barriers at the socioeconomic level. Because when I was trying to apply for graduate school, I think I had maybe $300 in my checking account, maybe. Or I might have ended up using a credit card, which probably the $200 max. So you are trying to, to apply to graduate school, right? So you need to pay for the general, the GREs. There are these exams that you have to, to write before graduate school. Okay, so you're like, okay, I need to pay for those exams. But the rich kids, if you think about the, the kids with the money, they hire a tutor uh, and they've been studying for these things for like, you know, who knows, months. And you don't have enough money for even registering for these exams. And so I did register. And then once I did, I started studying for the exams maybe five days before the exam. And I think I found a book in the library or something to study for this stuff. And I'm like, okay, my goodness, this is not going to be good. And so you, you do that and now you've run out of money. Yeah. And now you start thinking, how do I apply to graduate school when there's application fees and this and that? And so I thought, I'm just going to have to apply to two or three schools. So I ended up applying to three schools. Do you think that the rich kids are applying to two or three? They're applying to 10. So they're increasing their chances. And on top of that, they the best scores because they've been getting extra help. And they're applying to 10 schools because they can afford to do that. And so you're already looking at some of these real barriers, right? Like these are real barriers for people. And so I look at all of that. So, so one of the things I ended up doing at... Um, at Illinois, was working with uh, the chemistry department to draw, to no longer require applicants to, to submit GRE scores, right? Because that was a huge barrier, right? So, so, you know, you can get all the data you need 
from their transcript. You, know, you really don't need the GREs to make a good, good applicant decision, right? And so, so removing sort of those real barriers. And that's sort of what I do now. I've got two questions which are kind of on the opposite spectrums, I think, a little bit. The first one would be, so you talked a little bit about obviously barriers with maybe underrepresented groups in terms of maybe not being exposed to different subjects or different areas of expertise or different pathways, right? So when you were coming through the systems in Zimbabwe, until your friend gave you that paper about Singapore, did you ever consider studying abroad or what those opportunities look like? Was that something that was just kicked into overdrive when you got exposed to that or was that already planted in your brain that you could go for? Oh, that was, that's a great question. No, I had no idea about studying anywhere at all. I, I, I had no idea. Okay. Until I got that, that applicant form for Singapore, I had no clue. And that is another very funny barrier. It's almost intangible. And what the barrier is knowledge. And you would also know that now I also learned a big, important, big lesson about knowledge. I don't like to be ignorant. I, I don't like not to know. I always want to know the things that I should know, right? It could be finance. It could be running. It could be I, I, ignorance is a killer. So that barrier is real. So you grew up in an inner city. You have no access to knowing what's going on. If you don't know what you don't know, you don't know what you're missing. Right? And you don't know how to prepare, right? And so that lack of information for me was such a huge barrier. This is why now in the U.S., if I want to learn about something, I go to the internet, I go buy a book, I can learn anything, literally and, and I would let, trust me, it's funny because my wife is a physician assistant. When we first started dating, she was surprised to find me one day at home learning about all the things. She had this big book of physician assistant medical team. I was busy reading the damn book. <laughs> like, knowledge here, we are living in a time when knowledge is everywhere. And I want to capitalize on that. As we immerse ourselves in Lloyd's journey, let's explore a key theme, the pursuit of knowledge for informed decision-making. Lloyd's story teaches us that waiting for opportunities may limit our understanding of our own capabilities. By seeking knowledge, we expand our awareness and vision of what's possible. We invite you to share your thoughts on how Lloyd's journey has impacted your viewpoint or inspired a quest for new knowledge. Leave a rating and review to join the conversation enabling us to continue offering diverse stories and insights for those on their own quest for knowledge and inspiration. Your voice shapes the narrative. Now, emotion can sometimes cloud our judgment in terms of making decisions. So how important do you think that practical approach to say, instead of worrying about, okay, the more schools I apply to, the better chance I get into. But no, the practical approach is I only have the finances to apply for two, three schools. These are the ones I'm going to go through. Yeah. And I'm going to remove the worry from the things that I don't really control. Right. So how important is that practical approach and separating <laughs> the emotion from 
the decision. I'll say this. I want to comment on the emotion part. Actually, emotion is very powerful. I never dismiss it from the decisions I make. I actually never do that. I use it to make those decisions. And some of the best emotions say, for example, fear, right? So if you grew up in poverty, right, like I did, you are so fearful of going back there that you make it your point to make sure that you are putting money in your 401k, you are putting money in your road. You're really making sure you're thinking about the things you need to think about. You, you get my point? Yep. Uh, so, so emotion, I, I don't remove it. Uh, I, I actually just find ways to channel it, right? So, so I wouldn't say that the idea of being pragmatic takes away uh, the, the emotion. You just have to really connect with it and see, and better yet, know why. Because once you know the emotion, you can also know why you have to do the things you have to do. And sometimes that also helps the managing of, of the emotion. Yeah. So, so that's this first part. I think you asked the, the, that was the second part of your question. It's a good question for me. The first part was, a, it, it's, it's more about the pra the practical approach and how you, right. how you, how you rationalize that. And don't worry about maybe the things that you don't have control over. Right. Uh, incredible. Good. That's, thank you for that. Have you ever read the book called The Paradox of Choice? I have not. My, re my reading is uh, well below where it should be. <laughs> You're funny. You should read it if you get a chance, but you don't have to read it because I can summarize it to you. If you go right now, when Netflix started putting things on, online and at night you just want to watch a movie and you go there and you start scrolling and scrolling. You know what? An hour later, you probably have not chosen what you want to watch and you, pro you probably have given up and you on to the next thing. It's the same thing that I felt when I moved to the U.S. When I went to buy bread and I had a headache after, after my, my, my visit to the store, I go to the store to buy bread and I have a whole aisle, actually two aisles of bread, this side, that side, on the other side, Chocolate bread, milk bread, potato bread, split toe bread, uh, um, rye bread, so sourdough, French ba baguette. What the? It's like how many bread do you need, right? Okay, so so basically, what that I, I love that concept then translates into being pragmatic. And I think it's a blessing that in my life, I've always had limited choices because you end up going for, for something so hard and so focused because that's the only one you have. So when I apply to three schools or two schools, I am going to put my brain power to make sure that I've given this thing the best thing I can, I, I, I can give it, right? And so... When I applied to schools when I was in Zimbabwe to the U.S., I think I applied to two again or three, and I got into two of them, right? Mm. Not that I intentionally just limit my choice. I always want to limit my choices to the things that are most important. So I'll pick the schools, and that's it, right? And that's it. Even though it's funny when I applied to MIT for this job, you could see how many jobs I had applied to, probably maybe two or three, or even, you know, like I, I don't like having... So much noise, I like to focus. 
So it's more of quality over quantity or less is more of quality rather than more is more of crap. It just helps you channel in your actions, right? To, to that specific area. I, I want to delve a little bit more into the kind of social inclusivity and diversity. So we spoke a little bit about mm-hmm. the, the chemistry department, the graduate school, I believe where you're the only kind of underrepresented, we spoke a little bit about how you felt that you don't belong at moments in that. So my, my question is more about that process. So when you felt that you didn't belong in that moment, how important was being patient, knowledgeable about why that is what it is by being empathetic with other people around you. And then how, how important was the community around you to kind of keep you on track with where you come from and where you're going to. Yeah. So, so, you know, um, they're saying there's a Lord, it's called the serenity prayer. It, it, it goes something like, give me the knowledge to know the things I can change and the wisdom to know things I cannot change. It's, it's something about the serenity prayer. It's, but basically it's like, know the things you can influence at that time and know the things that are outside of your spheres of influence and focus on the things you can change, right? And, and also know if you can't change it now, doesn't mean you can't change it later. And that's what I learned. Now I do change those things that I wanted to change back in the day, because I now have sort of my sphere of influence has changed. So, so it's very thoughtful. You don't just get worked up by things you can't change. Right. You, you can change them at a different time. So you can compartmentalize things. So again, being pragmatic about this whole situation is like, okay, you realize, okay, this graduate program is not as diverse as it should be, but you find people who are just incredible. JB was, your know, Jared was incredible. You look at the family and the people that ended up surrounding me, right? I mean, you, you just end up figuring out how to surround yourself with incredible people and, and how to surround yourself with a good community. And so, so it was very important for me to have that uh, validation, like, oh, you're great. And also, it also goes back to when I was a kid, right? I wouldn't say I've always believed in myself as a kid because you knew you, you had to do what you had to do. And, and, and so there's a certain level of this fierce independence or fierce knowing you can solve things, knowing you'll be okay, right? You can solve your challenges, but you need people around you to always sort of validate you that you're okay. And so in graduate school, it was JB. I made a lot of great friends in, in my program. And then I also made a lot of great friends outside. So it, it's so funny when you hang out with people who don't know what you do. They did not know what my research was all about. They just knew I was getting a PhD and my goodness, they think they thought I was pretty cool. And so we never talked about what exactly I did, but they always thought I was cool, right? Because these people are doing their own thing, either they are doing MBAs or, or whatever, something that, so they just think, oh my God, chemistry was hard for me. So I respect you getting a PhD and I'm thinking, do you know, this stuff is kicking my butt right now, right? But they didn't care about that. And by the way, this community of people that I met outside is actually where I met my wife in graduate school. And so they became really incredible people in my life as well. 
how do you identify the strengths in the people that you surround yourself in? So how do you surround yourself? Because ah. it could be by, by fortune, right? That these people just fall into your life. But at some point, I'm sure there are people around you in different, you know, spheres that, how do you identify the strengths of people? How do you identify the people that Absolutely. maybe you need to be empathetic with and help? Because yeah. that's incredible. That's an incredible question. Yes, they fall in your lap by fortune, but then they either they stay in your life by intention, I, I think. So, and they have to serve a function, I guess. Or I always value my friendship with Jared because it was one of the most important relationships I had in graduate school because he taught me a lot about myself and a lot about himself in so many ways, right? And so the people that end up staying, I, I think I now sort of know why they stay in my life. And it's always people who are go-getters, people who they've been thrown obstacles and they still keep going. And they don't necessarily have excuses over their life. They have this high level of self-responsibility. And those people tend to stay in my life. I, I've noticed. Is that a <laughs> representation of your mom and dad that type of personality that you connect with more uh, in terms of being goal-getters? I know. Pragmatic. I, I, I wouldn't say it's from my, my, my mom and dad. I, I wouldn't say that at all. I just think from some design of genes or nature, whatever, that self-responsibility, that, that awareness, I think from the stories I probably told you of my cooking at five years mm -hmm. old, that is so important. I don't even know exactly where I got it from, but you have to own your life because at the end of the day, it's you who lives that life. And so you could give many excuses about it or you could change stuff about it. And all of it is at the end of the day, is in your hands. And I, I have no clue who taught me that. Couldn't say it's my folks. I mean, maybe the, my folks gave me the foundation, but over time, I think I started just realizing you just gotta be the captain of the ship. Otherwise the world will toss you over and over. The, the waves will crash. You end up, if you wanna go to from Boston to the UK and you get on a ship and you don't control what where you want to go, you end up in South America or something, you know? So, so I, I, I have to say the people that have stayed in my life the longest are the people that have this self introspection or to realize that they are the captains or I don't know the gender uh, name for, they're the captains of their ship. You work in a, probably one of the most prestigious schools, right? So when you mention MIT to anybody, people automatically make assumptions of, of what MIT is without probably even knowing what kind of school or how prestigious it is. What are some of the pivotal moments in that journey to get to that point? This one is a very tough question. You know, some are easier for me, but this is definitely very hard, but I think I want to answer it by what someone, some wise guy once said, and they were talking about luck and right? they were talking about luck and how luck happens. It could just happen. 
right? One, or what people do is you can actually increase your luck or increase, you increase your luck by the people you associate with, the, the skills you gain from reading, from reflection, from experiences, all of this. And so over time, because of all of these things combined, you can continuously increase your luck, right? And I would say I've been very grateful that I had a mom who believed in education. And from that belief, I became a big proponent of learning. Like I love learning. I became very curious. And from learning, it, it got me to take opportunities. And then when I started my career, I worked at Emory University. And while I was there, I built a great network of people. So I increased, I sort of increased all of this luck. And the truth is, I don't think I'm that good. <laughs> I, 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 like the, the thing, I, I don't think I'm that good. I'm okay. I'm freaking average. Like, honestly. And there's certain people that I'm like, oh, you're brilliant. I don't think so. But I just think it's just increasing that bubble, right? So at Illinois, I worked with some incredible people like about to get Nobel Prize already or some already at Nobel Prize. And so you're meeting all these people and you're soaking in the knowledge, the wisdom. You now, you're really thinking about the things you want to do in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You're opening your eyes to opportunities and here you are, you are at MIT. And I don't think I'm that good. <laughs> Have you told that to the guys that hired you? I, I mean, I could, yes. <laughs> no, I, I really don't think I'm that I, I, I think I do believe in people. I do believe in people. I I see potential in people. And maybe that's what I'm good at. I can see people. I can hear. I can. I love reading. I love putting ideas together. I don't know. That's a, a tough question. As we enter the final stage of Lloyd's extraordinary journey, let's reflect on the humility woven into his story. The importance of finding strength in those who uplift, support and align with your goals is what Raze is all about. We aspire to create a community that draws strength from each other's stories and helps shape your own course of action. Join us in building this empowering community. Your ratings and reviews fuel our mission to help you set sail as captain of your own ship. Together, let's embark on journeys filled with inspiration and shared strength. You said at the very beginning that you talk to your mom every morning, right? 4.30 in the morning on a run pretty yeah, I try to do that, yes. And she helps me with the sort of realizing that I've been doing the same thing over and over again for the last 36 years. I just, I keep on just perfecting the same things. Literally, I have it. She always, you know, I don't want to mess up your question. No, but go ahead. No, that's pretty <laughs> super. Yeah. It's literally, it's funny to talk to you because I just realized I just keep on doing the same thing over and just keep on refining it. Okay, maybe back in the day, I would read, say, one book. But now, a week, I could read two books. A month, I could read four. But it's doing the same thing over and over again. I still do wake up the same time, and but it's perfecting it and perfecting it. And, and what I noticed, it, it's the same pattern for everything. It's the same parent for finance, same parent for PhD, 
same parent for life, same parent for running. It's the same idea. You are, you keep on doing the same thing over. You repeat, you get perfect. It's actually the same thing with relationships. You, you do that over and start, you, all of a sudden you just see that, wow, I have a rhythm to my madness and it's the same. And it's the same thing is, okay, I now, I'm, I now good at reading one book a week. Can I do two? Okay, you do that. Hey, I'm now, it's always, okay, can I, is this, is in the next step? Is it, I can run a half marathon in one hour 30. Can I run it in one hour 20? What, what is my limit? What is my, where is my breaking point? And, and that's funny because your breaking point keeps on shifting. The more knowledge, the more ideas. Oh, wow. This used to take me three years, but now with chat GPT takes me one, you know, like you keep on just, you get the idea. Yeah. The reason I brought up your mom is about how, or speaking to family in general on a regular basis is how that kind of keeps you grounded to your roots throughout this process. I don't think you necessarily need that, but I think that connection is important, especially through times of self-doubt, whether you were in graduate school and yeah. feeling the only one of your specific ethnic group, et cetera, and having those conversations just continue to remind you of your family values and where you come from and then kind of what you've gone through to get to where you are. My last question for you really is, and this has been, this has been fantastic to, to share this journey is, um, it can't, it can't be easy to have gone through all of these different things and just stay true to what your family has either sacrificed or just supported you to get to where you are. And I think obviously you support your family back home though, right? In terms of helping them in certain that's, ways. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, yeah. That's actually very true. Yes. So how do you bridge that gap between staying true to your roots, your family and oh. dealing with what I can only describe now as a very complex social a network, especially in the, yeah. the, the role that you're undertaking in terms of trying to bring groups of people together. How important is that in terms of keeping yourself true, but bringing different groups together? Well, I'll say this, yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question and that I probably also don't have a good answer to. Again, it's, it, you get challenged all the time and sometimes to be honest with you, I, I mean, we could talk another 10 hours on this. Many times where I lost my way and it's a struggle, right? Like it's like, again, if you're a captain in a ship, there's this thing that comes to you, boom, you know, the wave comes and the storm is there and you just like, ah, oh, God, this is, doesn't work. I just sometimes don't know. It's a good question. I don't know what has grounded me. I, I don't know what that is. What has kept me really connected with it? things I do. I guess this maybe is, is maybe a bad way to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm not fearful of dying. I'm not very fearful of dying. I'm not, I don't, people like, oh, he talks about dying. Like, no, I'm not. And it's such a powerful thing to, to not be fearful of dying because you start thinking we, all the people that are here right now, at this point in time, are going to be dead in 100 years. Okay? All of them, right? So the way I end up thinking about it is, how then 
can we all be great while we are still here? Like, if I'm going to be gone, how can I do, you know what they say, when you go hiking, you go in, take experiences and don't leave your trash or something like that. Don't trash the place. Take memories and not any other thing. Just that. I always think about that. And maybe, and just maybe, I'm grounded by the fact that we humans are mortal. We are not important. We are not that special. We are going to be poof one day. So while we are here, let's be so thoughtful about really be great. That's it. Like, because we are not that invincible. And it's almost contrary because someone could think like that and say, oh, screw it. I'm not going to do anything about it. I don't care anymore. It's all good. No. But I do care because we're not that we're not that special. We're all gonna bounce at some point. So, but while we are here, let's create value. Let's create. Let's see the beauty in one another, right? Like that, we're wasting time. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, the last question I ask you, everybody: If there was one one thing that you could tell yourself or tell somebody in a similar situation at the beginning of this journey, what would you say to that person? Or what would you say to yourself five years old, 10 years old, in terms of the advice that you would give yourself? A good question. I'll, I'll end it with a story that I think is very relevant. I always reflect on that. I'm not very religious, right? I'm not even religious at all. Probably an atheist at this point. So, but, but there's a story that I think it's funny. So I always think when I die and I go to to the gates of St. Peter or whatever, and St. Peter or whoever, I don't know, this guy has got a big book in front of him, and he says, Lloyd, you were supposed to do this and that and do that and this. I want him to say, damn, you did everything and went above and beyond, and if you did extra, this is what you were supposed to do, and you did more. Rather than, you know, it goes like, oh, you were supposed to do this and you do this and you're like, me. So once I, we don't have it, so technically we do not have choice to be here, but we also, we have choices on how we choose to live those lives and what we choose to keep on working on. And I want to exhaust all the aspects of talents or things to save others so that when I go, the guy looks at me and I look at me and he just say, yeah, I know. And I say, yeah, I know. You know, that's what I can say. Like, you know, pick out all these things that you have to give and just do it. That's it. As we reach the pausing point of Lloyd's awe-inspiring journey, the highlight that shines brightest to me is his humility and practical approach. Lloyd's ability to seek out opportunities with laser-like focus, even in the face of limited choices, is a testament to his unwavering commitment. He finds the best in people, turning potential obstacles into stepping stones for his journey. Lloyd embodies the living manifestation of his family's dreams and visions, using their inspiration as fuel for a relentless pursuit of learning and self-improvement. His story invites us to reflect on our own narratives, finding strength and hope in each chapter. Now it's your turn. How does Lloyd's journey resonate with you? Share your stories, reflections, and aspirations with a review. Let us collectively weave together tales of strength and hope, knowing that in every story, we find the inspiration to continue building our own narrative. Your voice adds to the symphony of resilience and growth, 
So until next time, keep embracing the journey, live beyond limits, and raise the sails of your dreams. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with Embracing the Journey, Living Beyond Limits and get all the behind the scenes content, visit www.raisemindset.org forward slash podcast where you can find links to follow us at all our social media channels and available podcast platforms on Apple, Spotify and Podbean. Thank you for listening.